So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 18 through 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And may the Lord truly bless the meaning of this text to our understanding this morning. And I think most importantly that that answer is also our answer as far as who Jesus is. Let's pray and ask for that illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent text that is before us. We thank you for this declaration. We thank you for the clear um, um, confession of who Jesus Christ actually is, that we will put him in this context, and that as your representatives, your ambassadors, your apostles here on this planet, as we wait for and prepare to enter your great kingdom in its heavenly sense, that we would be quick to recite the Apostles' Creed as we explain it this morning to those in this dark and dying world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as you might have picked up in my Prayer, we are going to be confronted with the most important question that you or anyone else in this world can possibly answer. Now, I, I, I want to pause just a moment and analyze the way I said that statement because we are looking at a hugely significant question. It's a powerful and poignant question with eternal consequences as far as who Jesus actually is. But the emphasis of our text and my emphasis this morning is not just on the question but on your answer to that question. Because the way you answer that question will determine how you spend eternity. Now, it's not just how you answer it. It's not just what you answer. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It is also from where the answer comes from. You see, you can grasp things in your mind and have an intellectual understanding of them without actually believing it. So therefore, the answer to this, and there's only one correct answer, it must be first the correct answer, but it also needs to come from the very essence of your soul. It, it, it needs to reflect the state of that soul rather than being something that you just grasp in your minds. And once we establish that, and once we consider what it means to be a, a, a child of God, what it means to be a kingdom dweller who is still alive and walking around on this earth, then we will consider what a privilege and an obligation it is to profess this Apostler's Creed. And I will explain why I am using the word apostler, and I hope you picked it up. And not Apostles' Creed, because there is an Apostles' Creed. I'm not talking about that Apostles' Creed, even though at the end of this service in transition to communion, we are going to recite that creed together. I'm talking about the, the confession 
of those who profess to know Jesus as the Christ. Now, this question, and let me phrase it to you in the way that it is in the Greek. I'll explain this later on. But it is very emphatic and very personal. The question that Jesus presents to his followers is this. You, but who do you say that I am? Okay, very, very direct and personal. And we will answer that this morning. Now, it's not like we haven't already seen the answer to that. I mean, in fact, actually, Luke has been telling us the answer to this question since the very beginning of his gospel. I mean, it starts out, the, the, the angel Gabriel comes and talks to Zechariah and then to Mary, reading from what he said to Mary. This is what he said. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, that's pretty definitive, isn't it? The angel who came and talked to the shepherds said it this way, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus himself as a 12-year-old boy, told us who he was when he got lost from his parents and he's in the temple. And he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be about my father's business. God himself told us who his son was at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Oddly enough, of the beings that we have seen so far in Luke, who are not heavenly beings, the clearest articulation of who Jesus really is has come from the demons, the evil ones out of hell. They've got a better understanding of who Jesus is than most people who walk on this planet. If you remember, when Jesus confronted the demon in the uh, in the synagogue at Capernaum, the demon said, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later on in Gerasene, when Jesus casts the demon out of that demoniac, the demon says to this, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? So there's no doubt that we have had this question answered for us long before the question was actually articulated. But Luke is now sort of building a drama as far as that question is concerned. He's repeated it several times from different sources. The first time really was out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee after that terrible storm. And Jesus calmed the winds and the waves with just the power of his will. And that's when the disciples said, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. From the most unlikely source, the second question, not very long ago in this same ninth chapter, was from Herod Antipas, hearing about Jesus, worrying that he might have been John the Baptist. He says, who is this about whom I hear such things? And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to ask the same question twice. Once in general about the crowds who are following him and then very specifically turning that question upon 
his disciples. So with that said, let's jump into the text, starting there in the 18th verse. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now I'm going to resist the urge. I love to kind of make con, uh, you know comparisons of form and the way that things are put together, uh, but I, I'm not going to do it because Luke doesn't do it. L- Luke doesn't give us any idea of when this happens and where they are when it happens. The other synoptics, especially Mark and Luke and Mark, have kind of been following each other as we go along. Well, they make a major uh, parting in the ways here because Mark goes on tells us about Jesus up in. Syrophoenicia and in, in the Decapolis uh, and, and in Caesarea, excuse me, Caesarea Philippi where this is happening. Luke doesn't give us any information about that at all. And for a very specific reason, Luke has just made it very clear to us the dynamic between Jesus as the sovereign, the supernatural, miracle-working Son of God as he divides the bread and then feeds all those thousands of people with it. He has just made that dynamic between Jesus and his disciples, and he doesn't want to interrupt our flow of thought by taking us into a, a long tour. So he jumps directly to this confession where that is just simply going to be verified for us. Uh, now, now, now Luke kind of starts, and again, no, no indication of where we are, but we do get some different information from Luke about what's going on when we come upon the scene. So notice the way that he does that. Now, it happened. That's just an arbitrary designation of time. Luke loves to do this, kind of just plug an event in because he's Following a thought that he wants us to follow. But nonetheless, now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer, and we know this. I mean, he would escape the crowds. He would even escape his disciples and go and be in solitude with his father. He needed that time. But when the Gospels tell us about Jesus spending that time in prayer, quite often it is around some kind of a major threshold, something that is of great significance, like, for instance, the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane as he's facing the cross. You may remember the last time in Luke that Jesus went uh, into a mountain to pray was just before he chose the 12 apostles out of all those other disciples. So when there was a very special event in the disciples' life, you would see Jesus uh, isolate himself a little bit in prayer. Now, we're not told what he's praying about here, but I think that we can assume that what he is praying for is that when he asks this question, that there will be an illumination in their hearts and minds. The reason I can say this is because over in Matthew, when Peter makes this crystalline Christological confession, immediately afterward, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. So I don't think it's a stretch that Jesus is praying for his disciples both then and now that they would have a full and a deep understanding of this apostler's creed, of who he actually is. Now, as we kind of look at this text, though, we sort of uh, see that doesn't this seem like it might be a little contradictory? Uh, It says that Jesus was praying alone 
and his disciples were with him. Well, which is it? Is he alone or are his disciples with him? Well, I think that by saying that he's alone doesn't necessarily mean that he is absolutely alone, but that he has left the crowds. One of the reasons that Jesus took his disciples up into Gentile areas, which is where he is, it wasn't necessarily to evangelize the Gentiles. In fact, quite the opposite. I think the reason was to get away from the crowds. They're constantly harassing him. And, of course, the malevolence of the religious leaders. Because we're about two and a half years into his ministry now. In just a few verses, in verse 51 of this chapter, we're going to see him turn his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. He's really got just about six months in his ministry. And so he's very intent on spending this time with his disciples to make sure that they understand. Now, the disciples have seen so much. We, we have talked about what's going on, the dynamic, in a variety of metaphors that Luke has kind of given us, boom, boom, boom. And I hope you've noticed that, cutting out other things, but making sure this dynamic of the modus operandi, the strategy, the battle plan, however we want to call it, of the kingdom of God, how that is going to work. Started out with that parable of the sower. The sower goes into the field to sow the seeds. We know that is the apostler going into the world to share the seeds of the gospel. Then there was that trip to the other side, the great storm that got in their way. But nonetheless, when Jesus is on the boat, you don't have anything to worry about. But they got to the other side. They're in a place where they're out of their comfort zone, a spooky Gentile graveyard, and there's the demoniac. And yet they saved the one that they went to find. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And then finally, last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And we looked at that as a living parable in a sense. And I emphasized how important it is that when we talk about Jesus, when we profess him to this darkened world, that it's not some watered down, um, desupernaturalized version of him. That it is the supernatural, miracle working son of God who is doing the dividing of the bread. And it's the disciples who are doing the distribution of that bread of life. That's the dynamic. And so he's continuing that dynamic. It's almost as if this is sort of a midterm for, for the disciples. Okay, I've shown you all of these great miracles. Now, what have you learned? What have you learned about me? The most important uh, uh, topic that he has. So, nonetheless, he asks them, he then turns to them, and he's going to ask them, what I consider to be somewhat of a leading, almost rhetorical question. Look in the second part of that verse. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, notice that he refers to the crowds. Some translations say the people. It's that Greek word oxloi that is so present in these gospels. Very important to the concept of the gospel. Now, if we were reading Luke's gospel straight through, and in fact, kind of imagine that you're Theophilus. All right, we know that this was a letter written to Theophilus. Now, imagine that you get this scroll, this treasured scroll that Luke has written for him delivered. Well, the first thing you would do would be to go find a quiet place 
and read the whole letter. You wouldn't study it the way we do in bits and pieces. You would read it right through. Well, if you had done that, then you would have seen the prevalence of the crowd in the way that these Gospels are being presented. Go back to the fourth chapter uh, when the ministry began. When Jesus stays up all night in Capernaum, healing virtually everyone in town after he healed Peter's mother-in-law. We'll read this. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. In the fifth chapter, great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. In the sixth chapter, a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. In the seventh chapter, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. In the 8th chapter, and when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. Finally, in this chapter, the ninth chapter, when Jesus leaves to go to the other side, Bethsaida, specifically to get away from the crowd, we read when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And so here's my point, and here's the point that I think that needs to be made about this crowd when Jesus asks his disciples how they have reacted. These are the people that he came to save. These are the people that he has poured his heart out to for two and a half years. All the miracles that he's been working and the preaching and teaching day after day and week after week has been to these people. Now, when he sent his apostles out, the, the, the 12, and they went out into the countryside to have a sort of a test run of apostling, it's the same people. So, in other words, when we get the answer in just a moment of what they think about Jesus, you have to realize these are the ones that Jesus has spent all his time reaching out to. And then he asks his disciples, okay, what do these people, what does the crowd that I have just spent two and a half years preaching and teaching and ministering and healing to, what do they think of me? What is their opinion of who I am? Well, let's take a look at the response. We get that in the 19th verse. And they answered, okay, the apostles answered, John the Baptist. Notice the period after that, if your translation has it. John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So the predominant Belief, the way I read this, Jesus asks the question, what do the crowds think that I, who, who I am? And they answer John the Baptist. Okay, so that's the predominant view among the people that Jesus has come to minister to, that he somehow is John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this when Herod Antipas was concerned that this was John the Baptist raised from the dead after he beheaded him, that this is the worst kind of superstition. I mean, there's no reasoning in this whatsoever. Jesus and John the Baptist were contemporaries. They were born six months apart. When John the Baptist is in prison, Jesus is roaming around 
Galilee working great marvelous works. How can he be John the Baptist? And yet this seems to be the predominant view. And in order for Jesus, even at this point, to be John the Baptist, what it would mean is that the soul of a dead man, like some kind of specter, some kind of spirit or ghost, would leave that dead man and enter, take over, kicking the old soul out, I guess, the soul of another individual. This is demonic in nature, in the belief that it is. Now, I want you to realize something, especially those of you who are in full-time or part-time Christian ministry. There's not a single one of us that doesn't get tired and frustrated and despondent because we pour our hearts out to a people group and share the gospel with them and minister with them, and they just resist it. It's like you don't say anything, and after a while, it can get very discouraging Imagine if you're Jesus, the very son of God, you know hell, you know heaven, you know what waits for them. And you have for two and a half years poured your heart out to these people and they think that you are the spirit of a dead man, some kind of ghost that has overtaken you. That had to be so frustrating, so discouraging. I don't know that Jesus ever actually got discouraged, but uh, it certainly would have been discouraging for me. But not everybody believed that. I believe that's the predominant view. But uh, the other people thought that he might be Elijah. Now remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven, so he wouldn't come back from the dead. He would just return from heaven. But at least this is a biblically-based idea. At least we're back into the realm of reality because uh, uh, Malachi tells us that Elijah is expected. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, is what Malachi says. But what this means, it means that the people are thinking that Jesus is more than likely the predecessor, the forerunner, the one who would come before the Messiah. He can't possibly be the Messiah because the Messiah is going to be rich and powerful and lead us as an army against the Romans. So they think that maybe this is the forerunner. Now, of course, we know, and Jesus will tell us very soon on the way down from the Mount of Transfiguration that Elijah is actually John the Baptist, but the people don't know that. The third idea that they have is that Jesus is actually um, one of the prophets, uh, one of the prophets of old who had been had risen from the grave. Now, we're not told which one of the prophets it was, and frankly, I don't remember any of the prophets that being prophesied that they would come back from the grave. So I think that more than likely they're speaking of The prophet like Moses, if you were here on Christmas Eve, we talked about that from Deuteronomy 18 when Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Uh, So more than likely, that's the prophet they're talking about. And if you remember in John 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000 there, they were getting ready to make him king. So he sent his disciples across the sea again. And they at that time said, indeed, the prophet who has come into the world, speaking of Jesus. So these are the three kinds of ideas that they have. 
Now, let's analyze those just a wee bit to kind of put this into its perspective, which I think is important when we look at the real question that follows as sort of a contrast that that Jesus is building. First of all, notice that all of these are positive in, in, in who they are. These are positive things. In other words, there's a group of people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, who hate Jesus, want to destroy him. And when they see the miracles, rather than thinking it's John the Baptist come back from the grave, they think it's the, the work of the devil. It is by Beelzebul that he cast out demons. Well, that's not the opinions that we're seeing here. We're seeing that basically... The opinion is positive. I mean, these are all very well-respected uh, men, the John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets of old. So, therefore, it's a positive view. But that said, notice that they're all prophets. And in particular, they're all dead prophets. Now, there's a strange thing going on in Judaism at this time. Jesus is going to bring it out in that, uh, that scathing commentary on the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, when he says you decorate the graves of the prophets and say, if we had been living in those days, we never would have killed the prophets as our fathers did. And then they turn right around and kill Jesus, who was the one who came to save. So there's this strange kind of dynamic where they worship and revere the dead prophets, but they kill the live ones. <laughs> Uh, Stephen, of course, the martyr, is going to bring that out in a, in a very straightforward manner when he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, meaning Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So on the surface, it looks like, okay, this is also something very positive, that they're all prophets, but not so much. He's a live prophet, and that really was not a good situation because the people tended to kill those prophets. But most importantly, brothers and sisters, and this is what I want you to see, all of them are mortal, finite, created Men, not a mention, at least in this discussion of Jesus as the Christ of God, Jesus as the anointed one, Jesus as the Messiah sent by God to save his people. None of that. Every one of these these beliefs in who Jesus is, see him as nothing more than a human being. And brothers and sisters, mark this well. This is the exact problem that Jesus is addressing by asking his disciples this question. This is exactly what he wants to see them articulate. That he is not just a man, not just a teacher, not just a preacher, not just the, the, the establisher of, a, of the, the wonderful ethical standards that he brought with him. But that he is the divine, sovereign, supernatural, miracle working son of God in the flesh incarnate and nothing can be more important to the history or the future of the church than this 
Now, once again, if we were to stop and go look at the other Gospels, we would notice that both Matthew and Mark, at this point, when they have this confession, they're in a general discussion of unbelief. So we know it's an undercurrent here. But again, Luke has not established the the discussion of unbelief. That's actually going to come later. But What Luke wants us to keep in mind, which he's been building in one of these stories after another, is the necessary dynamic that this is a kingdom and a church run by the Son of God himself. That he's the cornerstone and he's the head. And he is not just a man. He's not. This is what makes Christianity different than all other religions. We are not worshiping a man who wrote down some good things. We are worshiping the Son of God himself who came and he walked amongst us. So this is, I think, the, 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 the way that Jesus sets up the real question that he has, which is when he turns to his apostles. Let's look at that in the 20th verse. Then he said to them, note the them, but who do you say that I am? Now, once again, let me, let me just dive into the Greek here a little bit. Because as I said at the outset of this, this is a very personal, very emphatic, very important statement. If you were to actually go into the Greek, literally it would read, You, but who do you say me to be? That, that would be the actual ordering of the Greek. There are two words in there that I really just want to bring out. In the English version of this, the opening word is but. Now, that's a what's called an adversative. That, that's a conjunction that makes a transition from one thing, which is it, it wants the, the thing that is going to come to be in absolute contrast of what was just said. So basically by saying but here, Jesus is saying, but I want to know what you believe, hopefully in contrast to what the crowd believes. But who do you say that I am? And the second word I want to bring out is that word you. It it is emphatic. The Greek language is different than the English language in many ways. It's much more exact. But um, it, it doesn't necessarily follow. This is always confusion, confusing to first year or second, second year, even people who have been around Greek for a long time. Kind of confusing about the way that they order their sentences. We're very used to our sentences being subject, verb, predicate. You know, that's the way that we learned it. But when you start reading Greek sentences, it looks like they just sort of willy-nilly put their words wherever they want to. I mean, it can be it, it literally interjected anywhere. But what you realize about the language later on is that this is done by the writer, the author, for emphasis, all right? You see, the English language doesn't have the same ability to emphasize certain words that, say, Greek would. For instance, if I'm going to say this one phrase, but who do you say that I am, okay? Now, that really doesn't show any emphasis, but if I were to put it this way, but who do you say that I am? Well, then I've picked up the emphasis by the intonation of my voice. 
But Greek has the ability to do that by the way you order the sentence. And that's just a long-winded way of saying that Jesus is emphasizing. You just put an exclamation point, very personally, literally pointing his fingers at his apostles and say, okay, I am, I'm not as interested in what they believed in me. It was a rhetorical question. It's a leading question. I already knew what the people thought of me. What I am truly interested in is what do you think of me? Who do you think that I am? And that's why I say the the answer to that question is the most important answer that you will ever give because it verifies everything that we have seen so far in this gospel. All of the miracles that Jesus has worked, the the times that he's shown his power and authority over sickness, over illness, over the the demonic world, over death itself, over the, 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 um, um, the elements of creation, over sin, over guilt. It verifies exactly who Jesus is. It all makes sense to us if indeed he is the Christ of God. If, if, if he's not the Christ of God, then none of that makes any sense. But as I've said before, most importantly, I think in the way that Luke is presenting this, he wants to impress upon us how essential it is that his followers, his disciples, his apostles, both then and now, when they go out to sow the seeds, when they go to the other side, when they distribute the bread of life, are distributing and preaching and teaching and reflecting the true Jesus, the supernatural Jesus, the Son of God, and not some watered-down creation in their own minds. Is absolutely essential. And Jesus continues, or Luke, Luke keeps having the way he orders these things to hammer um, uh, for us what the real questions uh, of this is. It must be the message of the church and those who are the apostles. Now, as I said early on, before we even got started with this, we're on our way up a mountain as far as who Jesus is. I mean, there's been many uh, explanations, many miracles, uh, power and authority over all things. And now we're kind of reaching a climax, but not the ultimate climax. We're seeing now the statement that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. But the pinnacle will come in a couple of weeks. There's a paradox that will come next week because Jesus is going to say, you're right, I am the Son of God, but I've got to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. That just doesn't make any sense to these disciples. But on their way up that mountain, we're about to hit the pinnacle of that mountain of who Jesus is. And that's when we get to the transfiguration in a couple of weeks. But nonetheless, Jesus poses this questions to um, his his apostles. And brothers and sisters, let me just go ahead and restate this because this is underlying all of this. It's not just what they believe. It is not, he's not just asking them, who do you believe that I am? You're my apostles. I am leaving you as my ambassadors, my mouthpiece on this world. So not only who do you believe that I, I am, who do you say that I am? Who do you profess? When you tell people about me, how will you tell them no matter whether it costs you dearly, whether it costs you your very life? Because that is also 
coming up next week. Pick up your cross and follow me. So this is just really such a poignant place. But anyway, let's take a look at the answer that he gets. And Peter answered the Christ of God. Notice, first of all, that Peter is the one who answers. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But this is a source of tremendous controversy over the millennia. Roman Catholic um, um, theologians want to trace the papacy back to Peter. And so, therefore, they see this and interpret it as a statement of the supremacy of Peter. And I'm, again, I'm not going to go into a long discussion of that. But I will bring to your attention that when Jesus says, you, who do you say me to be? He's talking to all of his apostles because that's in the plural, the plural you. And so therefore, what we are seeing in Peter is Peter being Peter. Peter being just the normal Peter that he always is. The me first, me too, put my foot in my mouth, Peter, who constantly is the first to respond. Sometimes it gets him into trouble, like We'll see him make a fool of himself on top of the mountain of transfiguration. Or in Matthew, when he tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, sometimes it really doesn't work for him. But other times, like here, it's a brilliant revelation of, of, of spiritual understanding. So the way that we need to look at this is that Peter is the first among brothers, that he's not supreme, he's not set out to be some kind of special um, relationship, the vicar of Christ, if you will. But rather, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Peter is very special. He was in that inner core of disciples, and Jesus invested a lot in him. And so, therefore, both here and in Acts, Peter is seen as the articulator of what all the apostles were thinking at the time. He's just the spokesperson, if you will. So Peter answered, and he put it very concisely here in, in, in Luke, the Christ of God. Once again, this verifies everything that, that we have heard or that we have discussed. But notice, um, in, in both Matthew and Mark, there's an identical statement. You are the Christ and, and by the way, if you're not familiar with that word, that is not Jesus' last name. Um, it, it is a title. And, and in the Greek, the title is Christ. In the Hebrew, the title is Messiah or something close in, in Hebrew. But they, they're the same word. Both of them simply mean anointed one. And, and so therefore, both Matthew and Mark are making it very clear that you are the long-awaited Messiah Matthew goes on and says, uh, putting the words, I mean, or the words that Peter said, um, you are the, the, the Christ, the son of the living God. But Luke kind of gives it to us in just a little, basically saying the same thing. But, but he just kind of brings it, I think, in a more Gentile context. You're, you're the Messiah of God. You're the Christ of God. You are the anointed one. But once again, 
reconfirming the relationship between Christ and God. When Jesus turns his eyes towards heaven, when he divides that bread and feeds 10,000 people with it, he is turning to the relationship that he has with his father. And he is the Christ, the apostle from heaven sent by God to save a dying world, to pay for the sins and to live a perfect life, to complete and consummate his plan of redemption. That's who Jesus is. And Luke makes it very, very clear that this is a uh, a major part of that, uh, that, that, Jesus, uh, uh, that Jesus and the relationship that he has with God is a, um, a, a close one. That's not my idea, by the way. I didn't come up with that. That's actually been part of the church's belief in this passage really since the third century. Cyril of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, it might be even third century, I'm not sure exactly when he lived, but nonetheless, he's the one who stated here, Peter is obviously still under the influence of that feeding of the 5,000, where he sees Jesus as the, the, the multiplier, and the disciples, the apostles, are the delivery system of the bread of life. Well, all of that is wrapped up into what they respond. But listen, here's one of the most important parts, brothers and sisters. And if, 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 if you don't get this, you're not getting the full statement of this passage. If that's true, if you believe that, if you honestly in your soul, and I told you before, this is not something you can intellectually know the answer of. It has got to reflect the disposition of a soul that has been transformed, regenerated, and that has been born again in Jesus Christ. If that is your response, then you have no option not to be an apostle or sharing the light that is Christ. You are called to spread the seeds. You are called to distribute the bread. You are called to go to the other side, outside of your comfort zone, to find the lost and to bring them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't do the division. All you can do is the distribution. And so therefore, I mean, Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew. And, and, and it's not just that you believe it. It's that you profess it. What Jesus tells us in private, shout from the rooftops. The world needs to know that Jesus is not a creation of our own thoughts. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a human mortal man who lived and left behind some kind of an ethical standard. He is God in the flesh. He died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose from the grave. He's ascended in heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty even now ruling his his dominion. This is the Jesus we must declare. And of course, we remember what Jesus said in Matthew. And everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These are poignant, poignant words. Well, big, big passage, many different ways that we can go. But let's just back up a little bit. There's two ways that I want to process this, apply it, if you will. One is something that we must believe. And then secondly, that 
we must profess. And, and I'm not talking necessarily about the apostles, now I'm talking about us. So let me do what Jesus did because I believe that he's not just talking to these 12 men, 11 of whom will be his apostles, but to all apostles. That's why I'm saying this is the apostles' creed. This is a creed for all of us. This is confession that if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, then this is your private and public confession of Jesus. He is the Christ of God. So I ask you again, I'm going to do something my mother told me never to do. I'm just doing it for emphasis. I'm going to point at you. Okay. I'm going to point at every single one of you because that is exactly what this text does. You. But who do you say me to be? It's not just what you say in your mind either, folks. You, you, you can't learn the answers. I, I used to, before I became a pastor, I taught in a Christian school. And, and it was different from our school. Our, our school is an outreach school. Um, but like most Christian schools, the school was a covenantal school, which means that at least one of the parents has to be a professing, a professing Christian. And, and so different schools have different ways of determining whether or not parents are Christians as part of the interview, the registration interview. Well, in this particular um, school, they used the two diagnostic questions of evangelism explosion. I think most of you are familiar with those two questions. But if you're not, these are two questions as part of an evangelism program that were specifically designed to sort of ferret out the spiritual state of the people who were there. There's four, basically four different ways that you can answer that. But the problem was that <laughs> the answers got around. You know, they got circulated. So, you know, people who may or may not have been Christians never went to church, but still, for whatever reason, wanted their children to go to that school, knew the answers to the questions, and at least were able to give a rudimentary defense of themselves as Christians. And so a lot of people got admitted to that school who really were not covenantal Christians. You see, if all you do is know the answer... I mean, you've learned it. I've told you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ of God. That's the answer to the question. But the, the it's not just to know it intellectually. Now, we do grasp the gospel intellectually. It is a rational thing. Our minds must understand it. But unless it makes the migration from the mind to the heart, unless that heart, like Jesus divides the bread, the Holy Spirit regenerates that heart so that you are the good soil that God determines that will accept the seed and bear fruit a hundredfold, unless God accomplishes that, then I don't care how intellectual you are as far as knowing the correct answer, it's not going to do you any good. The question that you need to ask yourself is when I answer that question, first of all, is it correct? Because there's only one true answer. Jesus is the Messiah of God. But where does it come from? Does it reflect who you are? Does it reflect, reflect the essence of your soul? Because if it's not, then drop to your knees, my dear friend, and ask God for mercy that he will that, uh, illuminate your heart and your mind and regenerate your soul so that when you say that, you can actually absolutely mean it. 
But my dear friend, if indeed you know the answer to that, and if indeed you can articulate it, then what it does is it identifies you as a kingdom dweller on this earth. And you are under obligation. It's the greatest privilege that we have, but you are also under the obligation not only to know it and believe it, but to profess it. This, in my mind, is exactly what Luke has been trying to tell us in the way he's ordered his gospel. And I think very effectively, whether or not you have picked it up or not, that Jesus, that the Jesus that we profess is not some made-up Jesus. Please, when I, when I ask you the question, who do you say that I am, please don't answer it and say, well, this is what Jesus means to me. Okay? It doesn't matter what he means to you. What matters is who is he? And do you know who he is in the heart of your soul? He's the same for all people. It doesn't make any difference if you have determined some kind of a different kind of Jesus in your mind. And you sentimentally follow him. Pick what you want and throw out the rest. What matters is who is he? Because when you stand before him at the gates of heaven, that's the only thing that is going to make any difference. That you know in the very heart and soul. That Jesus, as Luke has told us, is not just a prophet, not just a normal man. He's not just a set of rules or an ethical standard. He's not just an institution or a religious persuasion. This is God in the flesh. This is the incarnation of the second member of the Godhead. This is the supernatural, miracle-working, atoning, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coronated Lord. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the Lion of Judah, who was the Lamb who was slain. This is the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Altogether Lovely One. This is God's Son in human flesh. And if you know that... He deserves your worship, your dedication, your life, and your all. That is the right answer. And that is who Jesus is. And brothers and sisters, that is the Apostles' Creed. That is what we must profess. And once again, that's only half of the story because it's not just enough to believe it. It must be professed. If you are one of those few people on earth who are blessed with this understanding that you know that Jesus is truly God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he has imputed his righteousness to you so that you can stand before a holy God and worship him forever. If you actually recognize that, then you have have an obligation to worship, to love, to honor, to praise, to follow, to dedicate your life to this God in human flesh. But you'll find yourself to be an island in the stream. You'll find yourself to be out of step with the rest of humanity. You will find yourself as the apostles were in their day. To take their very lives into their hands. All of them except John as far as we know. Died violent deaths way too soon. 
because of what they believed and what they were willing to stand up for. That might be coming around again. It certainly seems like the world, especially in the West, is becoming hostile to the gospel, hostile to Jesus. Karl Marx said of all the things that need to be eliminated for his utopia to be established, the first thing we got to do is get rid of Jesus because he's the major problem in the world. Fortunately, Marxism is just about dead in the rest of the world. The only place that it lives and breathes is in the American university system. But nonetheless, if you stand against the stream, then you must be prepared to profess the Apostles' Creed, even if it means harm would come to you, even if it means that you might lose your life. Let the rest of the world twist Jesus around and make him something he's not, not you. You you profess the true, the one and only Jesus, regardless of what that brings about. Well, this morning, we get to follow up that message with a visual manifestation of our belief when we take the Lord's Supper. When we engage in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, basically what we are doing is we are confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah of God. My, my dear friends, don't take this, this food that we're, I mean, this, this, this cracker and this unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine that we're going to pass around. Don't take it if you do not say in your heart from the very essence of your soul that Jesus is the Christ of God. Because Paul warns us about taking it in an unworthy manner. But basically when we take it, we are professing to the world that we believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. So in preparation for that, uh, I know that some of you probably have been confused because I have used the term Apostler's Creed. And I have made certain that I emphasize that this isn't the Apostles' Creed. Well, just to confuse you, I'd like to stand and recite the Apostles' Creed as we prepare our hearts for communion because in it is basically, the Apostles' Creed is much more fundamental. It it focuses on Jesus alone. But the Apostles' Creed is an ancient creed going all the way back to the foundations of the church and people have been professing this for millennia to express what they truly believe in their hearts. So if you're able, if you're not able, don't worry about it. But if you're able, would you please stand with me? Bob, I didn't tell you, but uh, you have them there as far as slides are concerned. And um, let's recite this together. It's also in your bulletin. We used to do this every Sunday. We stopped doing it just because people got very confused about some of the language. Jesus doesn't go to hell, just so you know. He's experienced hell on the cross. But nonetheless, it is a statement of the fundamental beliefs that we have. So I ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Remain standing as we pray. Oh, dear Lord, thank you that you have blessed us beyond compare by illuminating our hearts to the true identity of Jesus the Christ. Thank you, dear Lord, that when we read these words in your scripture, that they're not just words on a page to us, that there is such deep meaning and it resonates in the redeemed, regenerated soul that you have given us. Oh, Lord, I wish that I could do what only you can do, that I, I, could, I could bring that belief, that regenerated soul on every single person. I would do that, but that would be my fallen wisdom and not your perfect wisdom. Your ways are not my ways. And so we bend the knee in humble obedience but also humble recognition that you and you alone are the sovereign God who we worship. You alone can save us. And so, dear Lord, we just pray. We just lift up those, either in the sound of my voice or even those not anywhere near the sound of my voice, that you would bring them to a saving knowledge, that you would regenerate hearts, that you would move in this wicked community that we live in and that we would see revival, true revival, true conviction, turn around, repentance from the people that we live with. And we would give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.